0: Share the road may be the tagline when it comes to bikers, pedestrians, and people on scooters, but is the road shareable by design?
1: Atlanta is a city that is really retrofitting itself from being a city where people were leaving uh, in the 70s and 80s and and before that to, to a place where people are now coming back in very large numbers.
0: I'm Virginia Prescott, today on Second Thought, a look at how a rise in bicycle and pedestrian fatalities in Georgia is spurring on efforts to identify and reduce the causes.
1: A lot of people are on board with this and there's a way to do it by respecting drivers and respecting bicyclists and respecting pedestrians.
0: And a first-of-its-kind theater in Athens brings stage drama to the deaf community. Plus, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms testifies to Congress today on the city's climate change plan. We'll look into how local governments are preparing for a warming planet while the federal government rolls back protections and doubles down on denial. The news is first. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is in D.C. today to share the city's climate change plan in front of a Senate panel. Well, later in the show, we're going to be hearing about how leaders in many southern cities and towns are leapfrogging over ideology when it comes to planning for climate change. But first, live stage productions can frustrate the deaf. Even rare productions with real-time supertitles and signers generally place them off stage. Two University of Georgia alums have devised a solution. Haley Beach and Amara Ede are founders of Hands In and Athens. It's an educational nonprofit that produces original works in American Sign Language. They want to bridge the gap between the deaf and hearing audiences by spreading awareness of ASL and deaf culture in dramatic media. And Haley and Amara are joining us from our studio at Athens at wga hello hey hello good morning just want you to know i just spelled hi in asl just learned that today. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to have you with us are there different schools there are uh, many different schools i know in georgia specifically designed for deaf and hard of hearing students but scant opportunities for de- the deaf community in the arts is that what motivated you to create this deaf theater company
2: Yes. um, So what we decided um, in the summer of 2017 um, is that it's just kind of like deaf people in the community have to wait for a role to appear, for a role to open for them, um, for somebody to actually need them to be deaf for a specific movie part or for theater production. Um, But we wanted to open an opportunity for anyone who enjoys the arts to um, audition no matter what. Um, their language communication was so we wanted to be able to do a show that a hearing person or a deaf person could audition for at any point in time and there was just a lack of programming in the area um, designed for that specifically so that's what motivated us to start hands-in
0: so you you both
3: co-founded the theater in
0: 2018 do you both have a theater background Amara I think you do right
3: yes so when I was in high school I was involved in a local community theater um, I think Haley's background is a little bit more on the profit side of things, and so when we started the theater, I was kind of um leading her on that. But then when we turned it more non profity, she kind of led me on that so it sounds like the right combination of experience
0: theater experience non profit experience did you have a budget when you started?
2: <laughs> no. no, not everything was <laughs> completely out of pocket, so Amar and I spent a total of forty dollars the first summer. Uh, we went to uh, Park Avenue Thrift Store on 25 cent day on Wednesdays and clothed the entire cast <laughs> in all of their costumes. Um, but we did not have a budget. It was the a very first summer. very <laughs> low
3: budget costumes, very low budget set. It was, but people were still really excited to see it. And so then when we moved up to the next year and actually started the nonprofit and had a little bit more flexibility. Um, then people were really, I think, blown away because they were like, wow, you could do all that for $40. Imagine what we could do with $400. I'm,
0: I'm astounded. Well, so, <laughs> so say that I'm there in the audience and it hands in a hands-in production. What's different? What do I see?
2: So well, what you're seeing on the stage is completely in American Sign Language Um, You, as a hearing person, would come in and sit, and we have um, voice interpreters who are mic'd in the back of the theater. So you would be hearing everything in English, but seeing everything in American Sign Language. And a hearing person has the ability to do that. They have the ability to hear something and relate it to what they're seeing in front of them. So they can hear something behind them, see what's in front of them, and connect the two. Um, Whereas a deaf person who comes in to sit, everything they see on stage, therefore, is completely accessible to them.
3: Which is very opposite of like normal theater, where Uh, the deaf person would have to be looking back and forth because typically, even if it's an interpreted show, it would be like a front row... The, the interpreters would sit on the front row, right. they rarely are on stage. So you're constantly looking back and forth and missing half of the action on stage because you're trying to understand the words that are happening. Which is what live theater
0: is all about, that focusing on the stage. But noise exactly. can also play a role in traditional theater. You know, the, the, the sound effect of the screeching car or a gunshot or a noise outside the set. Do the interpreters also interpret those kind of sounds?
2: So in our show, all of the action that is happening on stage is visual. Mm -hmm. So we any kind of cues, like say a doorbell happens, like we had one in our our most recent production, there was a doorbell, all of the lights would flash. So anything that that happens, say a gunshot, um, say a doorbell ringing, say somebody knocking on the door, all of that would be represented with the lights that we have in the show.
0: Well, let's just hear a little clip from your most recent production, Wonderland, an adaptation of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Let's hear that. What is
4: your name, dear child? My name is Alice, your majesty. Who are these? Mm -hmm. How should I know? That's hardly any of my business.
0: So a totally different thing here. Now, now the people who are interpreter who are actually speaking the part in the back, they have to time that perfectly. That's that's a challenge for a production.
3: It definitely is. Um, we try to bring in our voice interpreters about halfway through our production run. We give our signing actors time to get really comfortable with their lines and get to the point where we're doing run throughs, and then we bring in our voicers and we give them their scripts at the beginning so that they can get familiar with the line so that they can be watching and trying to time it as well. Cause most of our voicers don't know sign language. So it is a, a challenge, but one that they are up for and do really well with.
0: Did you find that you have a lot of actors who
3: do know American
0: sign language?
3: Honestly, we... <laughs> it's, it's a we toss a up of from, from yeah. show to show. Sometimes we have um, more like if, depending on the show, we have, like, more people who are deaf and hard of hearing or more interpreters. This this time, we, I think we had four deaf and hard of hearing people and then, like, three others that were, or four or five others that were, um, either their child was deaf, their sibling was deaf, their parents were deaf, so that they were more fluent. And they are in- invaluable because they really help the actors that we have that show up knowing no sign language at all and so we all kind of meet in the middle and get each other to the point that we're ready to present a fully accessible show.
0: That's Amara Ede, also with me, Haley Beach, founders of Hands In in Athens. It's a theater company for deaf and hard of hearing people. Um, not just that, I just want to stress that it's not exclusively for that, but they center them in the action on stage rather than having them off sides, which traditionally happens in theater. Uh, so do you choose, did you, I don't know about the history of the production Wonderland. Did you write it or is this a play that you were just adapting?
2: So with all of our productions, um, Amar and I sit down and write the English script. Mm -hmm. um, And then we have an American Sign Language Advisory Board that we sit down and meet with. um, And it is completely comprised of all deaf and hard of hearing individuals, people who are fluent. Their first language is American Sign Language. And then they transliterate it into the actual sign language that you see on stage. So what you are hearing is Amar and I's English script. But what you are seeing is our ASL Advisory Board's Um, interpretation of the English script. Um, So we are responsible for the English portion, but they are responsible for the ASL.
0: All right. So you've also previously done No Place Like Home, Nottingham, Ever After. How do you decide about which productions to stage?
3: Um, Well, typically we just pull from the public domain because we um, are a startup. And so we don't have huge budgets to pay for the rights to big shows. And hopefully we'll get there one day. But in the meanwhile, I think Haley and I have a lot of fun writing the English scripts. So we pull from classic stories in the public domain, and we adapt them, make them a little bit more modern, and add in some fun music that makes people excited. Like we try to get a really diverse um genres of music. So for every like country song, we try to have like a punk rock song or something like that. Hmm. So there's a little something for everyone.
0: How do you communicate the music? You know, the sort of tone of the music for the deaf audience?
2: We typically do it through dance and through facial expressions. So for instance, in our most recent production, we had a jazz song called Stray Cat Strut. And so for that, we, we used a lot of jazz dance moves. We used a lot of like um, cat-like facial expressions. We had him try and portray the music as best he could with his body while also signing the words.
0: So you're both alums of UGA. What did you study respectively or, or, or how were you prepared for this opportunity working with the community? I'll ask you first Haley.
2: Um, so I actually studied communication sciences and disorders, um, which people in my major typically go on to be speech pathologists or audiologists. Um, And so I I got to learn a little bit more in that major about how hearing aids work, how cochlear implants work, things like that. Um, So I learned just a smidge about deaf culture with that, but then I also, it opened up my schedule to be able to take all of the American Sign Language courses that were offered at UGA. Um, And I also did a graduate program in nonprofit management while I was here. So that honestly has been the most helpful part of my college education.
0: And you may you may hold Angela. the record at forty dollars of starting a nonprofit on the <laughs> least money I've ever heard of. How about for you, Amara?
3: What was your background? Um, so my undergrad degree is in biological sciences. So very <laughs> okay. Helpful. I'm seeing this all come together. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, when I was a student because I I graduated a few years before Haley did. Um, American Sign Language was not offered as a foreign language course, so I wasn't even able to take it because um, it was just a communication disorder. is like you had to be in that major, and I wasn't. So I wasn't able to take it as a student. But the year after I graduated, of course, they opened it up as a language. <laughs> so I just um, reached out to the professor, and I was like, hi, hey, I'm still in town, and I would really love to learn more about this language because I had started learning a little bit by myself. And um, he welcomed me, and I audited that class the year after I graduated. And now that professor is the chairman of our ASL advisory board.
0: I'm curious about, you said the feedback has been really good from the community, but tell me about the audience. Are many of them deaf or hard of hearing? You know, as, as you see, as you produce more shows, are people coming back to see more?
2: So we actually have one family in particular that we love. They are called the Edmondson family, um, and they drive just about three hours to see our production. Um, every time we have a production they so have not missed one we have not missed one yet um, and we get to see the girls we are so excited to see them every time we get to see them grow up which is so fun um, they have two deaf um, uh, daughters and they bring them to every show that they have um, and really our first production of no place like home was the first time that they had ever met anyone else with a cochlear implant or hearing aid like themselves wow and so it was so cool for them because they walked up to one of our actors and they were like oh, you have you have a cochlear implant too you have one like me and then all of a sudden all the other actors started coming up and pulling their hair back and showing that they had cochlear implants too and so like it was really great to see the girls faces because they were like shocked that so many other people in the world were like them yeah we (laughs) cried
0: I can imagine it's worth it Um, so do you have any plans to take it outside of Athens or take shows on the road
3: Uh, ideally in the next couple of years we'll be trying to move to Atlanta um, I think we'll probably be in Athens at least for this ne- this upcoming season. Um, but the deaf community in, Atla- in Atlanta is much bigger than the one in Athens, so we're definitely trying to move out that way.
0: Well, Haley Beach, Amara Ede, thank you so much for speaking with me.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having
0: us. Haley Beach and Amara Ede, they're co-founders and directors of Hands in Theater in Athens. It's a nonprofit that produces plays in American Sign Language for the deaf and the hard of hearing community. Well, coming up, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms from Atlanta is going to be in D.C. today. She's testifying in front of the Senate Committee on Climate Change. And the questionnaire is conservative liberal while ideology doesn 't really matter to leaders in many southern cities and towns when it comes for planning for climate change. But first, you think scooters are dangerous? Try walking or biking in Atlanta. We're going to hear about the challenges of sharing the road when we come back. But you can always join the conversation that's going on on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Tell us what you're hearing. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Tell us if you heard something that made you think or talk about it with somebody else. You also are on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us on secondthought at gpb.org. You can leave us a message. We're at 404-500-9457. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around. On Second Thought, we'll be right back after a short break. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Atlanta police are cracking down on scooters after at least one death and hundreds of injuries. It is illegal to ride them on sidewalks or to violate other traffic laws while riding them. The focus may be shifting to electronic-powered two-wheelers, but collisions that involve traditional bikes, cars, and pedestrians are on the rise across the U.S. and in Georgia. The Atlanta Regional Commission reports a 53 percent jump in such incidents, between 2006 and 2015, the number of serious injuries or even fatalities went up by 26 percent in that time. Thomas Wheatley wrote about the rise in accidents for Atlanta magazine, where he is articles editor. I spoke with him after his article came out and asked if distracted driving is causing the numbers to spike.
1: Well, distracted driving, it, it plays a role. Um, there are a lot of factors at play, however. Um, one is population growth. Uh, There are more people. So more people are driving. Another is in a good economy. More people drive. More people have to go to work. More people are moving goods. A big factor, a lot of experts say, it has to do with just the roads that we drive on, Mm. the way that they're designed, and especially um, the roads in Sunbelt states, including Georgia, which are really known for sprawl. Um, We build roads that kind of take us further and further out, farther and farther out. And the main design factor in those is just moving people as quickly as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. So they're designed for speed. In fact, that was probably one of the most disturbing things that I saw in your article. Uh, Rebecca Cerna, she's executive director of the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition, told you, our streets are dangerous by design. Yes, And now mind you, she's an advocate for cycling. But is that how it's looked at overall?
1: Yes, very much so. And especially among advocates uh, like CERNA, like Sally Flox from PEDS, um, which is a pedestrian safety organization that does a lot of work in this area as well. Um, th- 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 roads are really designed, especially roads in, in metro Atlanta, they're more designed for automobiles. They're not as much designed for people walking or people on bicycles. Um, Not to say that planners do not care about those people, but uh, oftentimes when you're looking at these roads, you're you're making cost cuts, you're thinking, okay, what do we need to do to kind of get this to the finish line? And it's all about, okay, how can we move more cars?
0: Right. I often see there are no sidewalks in many, many places in Atlanta's roadways or streets, certainly not bike lanes. But but what happens here? It seems is that you know while well, share the road may be the tagline, you find. Some examples of resistance um, initiatives that effectively pit drivers against pedestrians and cyclists. What are some examples of those that you came up with?
1: There was a a battle on over Peachtree Road over restriping it a few years back, and uh, GDOT had proposed putting in bike lanes, and that was met with a lot of resistance, um, especially from people who lived in the area, and they argued that it was going to cause traffic to back up, it was going to frustrate drivers, and it was going to send drivers. Onto residential side streets to try to bypass the gridlock mm-hmm. and with innovations like Waze and all these other apps um, you hear that complaint more and more that you know my my sleepy quiet side street is now a cut through for everybody driving from Cobb and, and elsewhere to get to their office um, there was such uh bitter dispute over that, that they eventually, you know, scuttled the bike lane, um, Dot did. And another example is Decab Avenue, where uh, if you live in Atlanta and you drive on Cab Avenue, it really is kind of the city's craziest street. Um, there's the, unfortunately, you know, named suicide lane. Uh, it, people travel at high speeds. It's not really a great place to walk or to bike. Um, And there have been discussions for years over what to do with that street. And I always love covering these meetings because passions are are so high. I mean, these are some of the best community meetings to cover um, because people really care about this. And you have two very clear sides saying, I want this, I want that. Um, But the answer is really kind of in between.
0: As it often
1: is. And we, and we need both.
0: Well, there are some notoriously problematic spots you mentioned, Cab Avenue, especially in Metro Atlanta. In 2016, Alexia Heineman, she was a freshman at Grady High School, struck by a motorist in 2016. This was at the intersection of 10th Street and Monroe Drive, and she later died. So students from Grady High School are still rallying to improve this intersection, this yeah. uh, Complete Streets Program's What is a Complete Streets program, and how would that help?
1: Complete Streets programs really kind of look at a street for all users. How do you make it a street where uh, it's safe to walk, it's safe to bike, it's safe to drive? Um, We all pay for these streets, so we should all be able to use them. Uh, So think about, like, protected bike lanes, wide sidewalks, good lighting, crosswalks, maybe um, special signals at intersections that might be uh that might be more dangerous Mm -hmm. um it really is a complete street is it's kind of a beautiful thing if you're a wonk because it's 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 something that everybody can use and everybody can feel safe using um we need more of those in atlanta um atlanta is a city that is really retrofitting itself from being a city where people were leaving uh in the 70s and 80s and and before that, to to a place where people are now coming back in very large numbers, and what we what worked back then is not working now.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but what about the cost for something like that? Installing more streetlights, creating bike lanes. beside the fact that you're taking away room from drivers.
1: Well, I mean, you know, bike bike lanes can 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 run. You know it depends on uh, it depends on what you want tactical urbanists have done some really cool things with just putting up planters separating traffic from from bikes um, you know you can have a protected bike lane for about thirty thousand dollars a mile i think um, and then it can go up i mean if you want to have like the rolls royce of bike lanes, someone can do it for you um, a lot of times those can be you know a fraction of a road project and It's and sometimes it's just, you know, like uh, small things can 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 do a lot. Um, The issue becomes when, you know, we do things with city money, like building a pedestrian bridge over Northside Drive. For for, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. For the Mercedes-Benz Stadium that was supposed to be used for the Super Bowl. And then it was closed for the Super Bowl until after the game. And when really you can do some some pedestrian fixes on Northside Drive for just kind of a fraction of the cost. Mm -hmm. So it's all about, I mean, talking with advocates, it's all about your priorities and if you want to do something about it, you can budget the money for it.
0: Yeah, but of course that means who's got the political power, who's got the ear of those who are in power to do that kind of thing. And how's how's that stacking up? Are these organizations like PEDS or Rebecca Cerner's um, organization, are they making a real difference?
1: They are. They, mm-hmm. de- they definitely are. I mean, they have a lot of um, political power behind them, um, especially in the city because it might be, while you might not be a avid bicyclists or or bicyclist or you might not be a really kind of gung-ho pedestrian I suppose (laughs) but it's it's one of those things that once you once you notice it's an issue a lot of people are on board with this and there's a way to do it by respecting drivers and respecting bicyclists and respecting pedestrians um Yes, I think they definitely have power.
0: But one of the things that you found is that people are pedestrians for so, at some point in their commute, right? right. That, that Maybe they're not going all the way by foot, but some part of them is winding up on foot. Do you think there's, I don't know, there needs to be a rethink about like we're all pedestrians at some point.
1: Yeah, at some point we are. And, uh, and, and especially if we want to live in the city, we're going to be pedestrians more and more. Um, I, I believe it's something like 75% of all transit trips start with you know, you start on your feet. Um, we have to be thinking about how are we going to get around our city in, an, in a safe way. Mm. Well, if you're just tuning in, I'm
0: speaking with Thomas Wheatley. He's articles editor for Atlanta Magazine, and he reported in the magazine on the rise of pedestrian and bicycle collisions in Atlanta and some efforts to change that. Well, I imagine if you have a bunch of high school kids rallying, that gets a lot of attention, certainly. Um, so, what has what have city officials and planners actually done to try and change things?
1: Well, this is definitely on the city's um, it's definitely on the city's radar. The transportation plan has this concept that that was uh, started in Sweden called Vision Zero. That's kind of baked into the transportation plan. Um, so, there are a lot of plans for complete streets around the city. Um, there's a lot of focus on, and this this is really interesting. That I believe it's something like six percent of the city's roads are responsible for, I believe, seventy one percent of the traffic related fatalities, wow. and forty two percent of the injuries. And that was between twenty twelve to twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can focus on those areas. Um, they can also, um, you know, commit to. To the funding that they have available we have the renew atlanta infrastructure bond package it's going to be paying for a lot of these programs there is uh there is some activity now where they're looking at the project costs because that money's not going as far as they hoped it would Um, so they can they can stick to this Uh, you have a lot of city officials who really care about this um tim keen in the city planning department cares about it um Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms on the campaign trail. She said that she, this was this was something that she wanted to pay attention to. So it's definitely happening in the city. I th- and and I think it's happening elsewhere in Metro Atlanta. It's just that I believe in the suburbs. It's it's it can be rather difficult because these were places that were designed really. For automobile traffic Mm -hmm. and as time goes on and um, you see trends of uh, more and more poverty in the suburbs, there's going to be a need for more transit. There's going to be need for um, more sidewalks for people who might not be able to own a car for them to get around. So it's a bit of a heavier lift.
0: Well, you talked a little bit about the population increase earlier in Atlanta. Of course, there's been a huge move to get people to have walkable cities, you know, people to be able to bicycle or or scooters. How are scooters, by the way, fitting into this? They seem to have been a a bane in the municipal, um, at least if you were looking at regulatory.
1: Yeah, they, uh, I mean... What I find really interesting about scooters is that they have kind of showed us, just through how people use them and people's behavior, how we're lacking in a lot of these um, kind of like pedestrian and bicycle facilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, If scooters had had, like protected bike lanes to travel on, I really think they would be using those more than sidewalks. Mm. You know, I mean, the fact that people are using sidewalks tells us that the city streets are not safe, that they... Really fear going down Peachtree or Piedmont Road, and somebody's roaring behind them. So, I mean, I, I don't have any hard numbers on how um, on how many injuries have been caused by them or anything like that. But it's it's definitely like a new wrinkle in in this whole debate.
0: So uh, we have so many people. The success of the Beltline has shown that people want to be on bikes. They want to be on foot. Do you think that? They're working there because they don't work on the streets of Atlanta. Is there something going on there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, because the Beltline just feels safe. It, it, it. You, you don't feel like you're kind of taking your life into your hands. Mm-hmm. It, it does feel like you're slaloming through people sometimes, and and there are some, you know, crazy people on bikes, and 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 you know, just crazy people walking. Um, but it's definitely a sign that people want this. And we can't have a belt line on every street, but we can have a place that gives you that same feeling.
0: There are a couple points that you brought up in the article that I really wanted to key in on. One is that, Oftentimes when we hear about a collision, you know, uh, a car, a driver says, I couldn't see the person, you know, it was dark or they came from nowhere or they weren't using a side, a crosswalk. So we often get these things from the perspective of the driver. We're right. very sort of driver focused. But you also got plenty of clap back, I guess, for yeah. advocating that pedestrians and cyclists need to learn how to share the road too. What did you hear from, from both sides?
1: Well, and people made a very good point that um, that, I was, that I was putting the burden on uh, Uh, on on the people without power and that that is that is a solid criticism um and i'm i'm of the perspective that people yes you need to know the rules of the road you need to know that you shouldn't jump out in, in the street in random times um and you need to kind of uh you need to give driver signals but drivers also really need to be aware that they're operating this massive vehicle and more and more people are operating larger, massive vehicles. Mm-hmm. I mean, SUVs are some of the biggest selling automobiles right now, and an SUV in a pedestrian fatality, or a pedestrian collision um, is the, the, the injuries are much higher, much more severe. Um, that we, we all need to really be thinking about how we're, how we're going to use this public asset. Everybody wants to get home, you know, but at what cost?
0: Right. So, is there a dis- difference? Um, you were talking about, you know, how beautiful the streets could look, and how the city is behind it—at least some segments. But is there a difference between a must-have investment here, and this would be nice, as far as city planners are concerned?
1: I, I, that—that's a great question. I really, I've, i and I, and I really don't know the answer to that. Um, there is a, there, there, there's a renewed focus at the city on equity. Um, which uh, has been a long time coming, but it's it's good to hear. Um, a lot of the places where we're seeing a lot of these injuries and fatalities are happening in areas where there tr- traditionally hasn't been much investment. And they're happening in areas uh, like the west side of Atlanta, where you have a lot of people who don't own a car, who are one of those people who are making those, uh, you know, they start their transit trips by walking to the bus stop or walking to MARTA. Um, it would be really good Uh, And just for those investments to happen there, but but you have to balance it out in terms of political power in terms of cost. um, So I wouldn't I would not want to be in their shoes. (laughs) It's it's just not fun.
0: Not in a car town. Uh, Thomas Wheatley, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thomas Wheatley is articles editor for Atlanta Magazine. He reported on the rise of pedestrian and bike-related fatalities and accidents in Atlanta. This week, GPB is chasing the moon to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. You can learn more about all the related stories on our website, gpb.org forward slash moon. And you can join the conversation on social media by using the hashtag GPB to the moon. And you can always talk with us on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. or on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a voice message at 404-500-9457. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GBBM, Virginia Prescott. If you live in Georgia, you don't see sheets of polar ice dropping into the ocean, except on YouTube. Other effects of a warming planet and ocean, ocean acidification are visible. Cypress groves and wetland trees turning ghostly gray. Pecan orchards shredded by intense storms. Shifting coastlines and shrunken streams in some places, flooded fields in others. Animals and plants once common... No longer there. A record heat wave in Atlanta in May. While loud debates over the causes of climate change dominate national policy, some municipal leaders are leaping over ideology and making plans for the future. Today, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is headed to D.C. to testify in front of a Senate committee about Atlanta's plans for climate change. But Rick Van Noy found that some Republican leaders in the South are also taking actions to mitigate local efforts while the federal government continues to roll back protections. Rick Van Noy met with several for his new book, Sudden Spring, Stories of Adaptation in in a Climate Change South. And he's joining us now from Blacksburg, Virginia. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Dr. Kim Cobb is with us also. She's a climate scientist at Georgia Tech and director of Global Change Program there. She also has worked with several municipalities on making climate change plans, and she joins me here in the studio. Kim, thank you for being here.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So Southerners, certainly not strangers to heat, but there is a new report from the Union of Concerned Scientists about how, quote, unquote, killer heat Is expected in the coming decades with Atlanta experiencing levels of quote dangerous heat. Now Rick I'm going to start with you what dangers come with higher temperatures especially in urban centers?
4: Um, Well the CDC the Center for Disease Control says that um, you know heat related exposure is uh, causes more deaths than some of these other more obvious or uh, talked about effects of climate change like hurricanes and floods etc. Um, The thing about heat is it also reduces um, productivity. Um, You know, we work slower and um, I think that according to one report, um, for every degree Fahrenheit of increase um, we lose something like 0.7% of GDP. You know, so there's a productivity loss, there's uh, more energy costs associated with uh, heat and then, you know, and then when When there's a lot of heat, people work more slowly. I know I don't want to work uh, when it's too hot, or at least outside. Um, And I think they've even found that heat has an effect on your uh, ability to perform complicated tasks. Um, Like, uh, I don't know, higher function math and things like that. Well, we also know
0: that running AC in high gear hits your wallet, too. Kim, how do these rising temperatures impact people in different socioeconomic backgrounds?
5: Well that's really the issue here. Heat is not an equal opportunity killer and so we really are looking at the very young and the very old people with pre-existing health conditions um, and especially across those groups the lowest income members of our community are exceptionally vulnerable often don't have access to adequate air conditioning to uh, maintain safe temperatures in their environments and so uh, this is why um, Uh, The mayor emphasized this in her testimony to Congress, uh, in her statement, noting that Atlanta um, in some ways has these challenges uh, currently, and they'll be getting worse in the future, um, and the city's plans, uh, addressing those city plans to get in front of that.
0: Well, and Rick writes in his book about the Climate Impact Lab's assessment of how climate change affects GDP nationally, but regionally, which Rick, by your read, the South is going to get hammered. Why the South in particular?
4: well it's already um it's already hot um it's low-lying in places and um as dr cobb mentioned it's already got it's got places that are very poor and very vulnerable Um, and those poor and vulnerable communities are going to be impacted and 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 displaced um, in some cases they may have a harder time relocating they may not have transportation they may not be to be able to get out and Um, during a hurricane or during a heat event um, as we talked about right Um, so that's one reason yeah
0: and not just extreme heat but also precipitation as you mentioned uh, driving rain increased precipitation and not just in metro Atlanta of course we've seen how rising temperatures are impacting rural communities including Georgia farmers now we did speak with cotton farmer Mark Peel in Berrien County back at the start of June who talked about what he's seeing
3: We are facing one of the the toughest droughts I've seen in years, and uh, record heats. I don't think, I can't remember when we've ever had uh, so many consecutive days of 100-plus degree temperatures in the month of May, and, you know, we're just, uh, can't believe it, you know, we went from extreme rain, you know, following Hurricane Michael, now to extreme drought,
0: Farmers, particularly attuned to environmental changes, of course. Kim, how much can we say that this is about climate change?
5: Well, the models and the historical data are pretty clear that we are expecting more extreme precipitation events, especially across the southeast, and that that's going to be separated by periods of of more prolonged and severe drought. And that may seem, uh, you know, counterintuitive, but the the drought conditions are really. owing to the heating of soil layers and vegetation that is going to lead to uh, droughts in in those agricultural communities. And then when that precipitation comes, it's going to come in, in more concentrated packets, which again represents acute threats for agricultural communities and urban centers alike. Well, are there less obvious
0: costs to these kind of disasters, drought and extreme rain that we don't think of? Like, you know, food production, for example. Obviously, if the farmers aren't able to deliver it, what happens there?
5: Well, definitely, uh, issues of freshwater resources are already rearing their ugly heads all across the globe, and uh, of course, across the Western United States in acute fashion. Um, here in the United, here in the southeastern U.S., we are blessed with fairly abundant precipitation, but of course, we still have our water wars um, uh, raging on across several states here in the South. So, really, it's about embracing these core findings of climate science and using those to help policymakers across the state prepare for the coming challenges and we have a a large bank of experts here in the state to help with that in the form of the Georgia Climate Project which is now a couple years old Uh, Georgia Tech Emory and UGA banding together to try to bring those findings to the communities to policymakers to practitioners and uh, help the state prepare for climate change and reduce those losses
0: well, that's one of the things that you did, Rick, is you visited a lot of places where, uh, that are on the front lines, low lying areas, uh, barrier islands, and I also found that people across the southeast in the nation are making carbon neutral or clean energy pledges so they're not concerned with the politics of it necessarily but with the changes that they're actually seeing and how to mitigate them so let's look at one example mayor Bulterman. I hope I'm saying his name properly from Tybee Island Georgia how is he taking action
4: well yeah I think just about everybody like the farmer that you um, spoke with is seeing changes and they're seeing changes in Tybee Island, Georgia, and um, one of the problems they have there is they have that causeway to get to the island. That's the only way to get on and off. Right, and Highway it floods 80 floods more. Highway 80 it floods more and more um, each year. Um, so they've set about to. Uh, they hired someone to create a pretty ambitious adaptation plan, and that involved a lot of different things, including um, protecting some of their dunes. Um, better communication with people when a storm is about to come so that they can, you know, if they need to get off, they can get off. Um, but to address that that road problem, um, they're going to need, you know, they just can't do it themselves. Um, they're going to need federal help. And that's one of the problems is, is, you know, there are sort of, there are really good places in the southeast that are doing great things. Um, but we don't yet have a kind of coherent national strategy.
0: Well, tell me a little bit more about the protecting the dunes, because this is something that the mayor credits with actually saving them from um, fall storms that came in pretty hard.
4: Yeah, I think they, that was part of their plan was to cre- was to protect the dunes or also to create um, uh, places for people, little you know, spots for people to sort of be able to access the beach and walk through. But to definitely protect the the dunes so that, yeah, in the case of a storm surge, um, they'd be okay. And I think uh, for the last storm, um, it worked.
0: So what does the mayor say about the, you know, the politics and the ideology The the whole discussion of climate change has been pretty, pretty soundly divided between, you know, conservatives and liberals conservatives think, uh, well, I'm not going to say what they think. I'm just going to keep with that generalization and say that that on the federal policy level, the government is rolling back on protections. So what how does the mayor defend himself as a Republican mayor?
4: Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the things. I mean, some of them don't like to get into the causality. I think the um, city manager in Tybee er, said something like, "You know, we're not going to get into causality. We're not going to get into cow flatulence or something like that." So, and I think that's something you sometimes hear at the federal level is that um, I don't know, climate change almost becomes like the butt of a joke or something like that, um, and you know, it's really not. Um, so they may not get into to the causality, but they're seeing the changes and I think they want help. And um, I think a lot of the mayors see this as kind of a practical issue. Um, it's almost like just as they need to deal with uh, trash or sidewalks or other kinds of public works initiatives, um, you know, this is a kind of public works, public safety um, uh, threat. And so so they're sort of practical and not ideological in how they're approaching climate change. Um, You know, the mayor is one. The mayor of the city of Charleston is another. Um, You know, I spoke to several that just saw this as a practical rather than ideological problem.
5: Kim, what are you seeing? Yeah. So I wanted to chime in here. I'm squirming in my seat because, you know, we have a fabulous new project down uh, based in Savannah in Chatham County called Smart Sea Level Sensors. And we've been so thrilled with a partnership at the county and the city level, in particular, uh, Mayor Eddie DeLoach, who is also a Republican, um, who speaks quite frankly about the coming threats of rising seas. And they have coastal flooding issues in the here and now that they need to address and longer term challenges to begin some important conversations about. People are pretty wide-eyed down there when you can bring a set of tools into a community and say we're gonna help you get more information about threats right now, uh, coastal flooding that you see uh, increasing in frequency, blue sky flooding, um, these uh, devastating hurricanes. These communities see the writing on the wall and they're really eager to work with us. So we've been so grateful for that partnership that's very deep and long-lasting Georgia Tech working with those communities.
0: That's Georgia Tech climate climate scientist Kim Cobb. Also with me, Rick Van Noy. He's the author of Sudden Spring. It's a book about how the South is dealing with the impacts of climate change. And we're talking about this on the day that Keisha Lance Bottoms, mayor of Atlanta, is in D.C. testifying on climate change. So why is she giving testimony on the Hill, Kim?
5: Well, I think everybody uh, in Congress is, is really keen to have a substantive discussion about climate change. And I say that from members across the aisle, actually. Um, I think that they're looking for cities for leadership right now where there is a relative void at the federal level currently cities are really stepping up to the challenge uh, there's over a hundred cities in this country that have made in the last several years pledges to uh, go 100% renewable in the next decade or two Atlanta being one of those and that's only one of many kind of policies that she is highlighting on the Hill today leading uh, leading climate policy and providing blueprints that can inform uh, future comprehensive federal policy
0: But these kind of changes cost money and politicians and leaders often have had to balance other expenditures, you know, transit, education, health services. How realistic are these infrastructure and clean energy proposals when a city has to balance a budget?
5: Well, the fact of the matter is that, of course, uh, solar and wind and renewables are becoming competitive with uh, fossil fuel-based sources of energy. And the fact of the matter is, climate change is a profound economic threat, especially, we, as we've just discussed in this segment, to the southeastern United States, and particularly to cities like Atlanta, which have so many uh, vulnerable residents and with a transportation uh, network that is also crumbling under its own weight right now. So really, when you get out in front of the, kind of infrastructure challenges, you are not just addressing climate change threat. You are improving public health. You are improving community well-being. You are improving efficiency. And so that's why this is such an attractive package that the city has put together and that the residents strongly support.
0: Obviously, coastal cities have their own set of problems. Rick, you mentioned Charleston also went to Norfolk, Virginia. What are some of the major challenges coastal southern cities are facing right now?
4: Well, they've all got um, yeah different kinds of sea level rise uh, scenarios. I think, you know, Norfolk is is also subsiding or sinking, and so they've seen about fourteen and a half inches of sea level rise. Um, now, of course, they're not also not they're not debating it. and Neither is the Navy that's that's based there. Um, you know, they, it's an issue of readiness for them. Um, Charleston has issues. Um, they've had I think three successive falls. They've had. Storms and flooding, and I talked to people there who are, um, you know, at sort of at wit's end with dealing with the flooding in their, in their kitchens and their in their living rooms. Um, they've got you know there's coastal erosion along some of the barrier islands in North Carolina and in Georgia. Florida sits on porous limestone, so they're not seeing as much sea level rise. But the problem in Florida is the water can kind of come up through that limestone, mm-hmm. um, and then you've got um and you got new orleans of course and they've seen that heavy red, heavy rain that we've talked about recently and they're also um they're also below sea level so they have to have this levee system and they have to have pumping systems and then there's houston and galveston and they're they've got these refineries to also to protect mm-hmm. um so Okay, They've so all got different issues.
0: We have just a minute left. So I'm interested in you know, you, you write in your book about Norfolk has to put about a hundred billion dollars into infrastructure improvements, Charleston five hundred million into digging some tunnels, massive tunnels, to try mm-hmm. and control some of the runoff. But we're talking about Uh, combating the effects of storms. We're talking about, let's say, mitigation, but not about prevention. Is it too much, uh, although Kim mentioned that some cities have renewable energy plans, is it too much to ask even for these small municipalities and sometimes big cities that are seeing the effects of climate change to focus on prevention? Kim, what do you think?
5: Well, I think it's going to be about states like Georgia and the leadership in Georgia recognizing the acute vulnerability of our state's economy to ongoing climate threats and to band together with their partners at the federal level to uh, make comprehensive uh, climate and energy policy reality. And we do need a price on carbon. And then all of this will accelerate much more smoothly and reflect the true cross of continued carbon emissions. So this is a kind of a example of how uh, local policies can start to to trickle up and raise awareness at the federal level.
0: All right. Kim Cobb, who biked here safely <laughs> and sweatily today,
5: she's a climate scientist and director of the Global Change
0: Program at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rick Van Noy, thank you so much.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Rick is author of a new book called Sudden Spring, Stories of Adaptation in a Climate Change South. He's going to be at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. That's our show for today. We're going to leave you with a song by Parquet Courts called Before the Water Gets Too High. This is On Second Thought. We will be back again tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening.